Amen. You guys can grab a seat. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name's Gabe. I'm one of the elders here and the primary teaching pastor. Uh, kiddos, you guys are dismissed. If you want to go into uh, kids' church, the rest of you, go ahead and grab your Bibles and open with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. But I'm going to go ahead and warn you. We're going to be in Isaiah 9, but we're also going to spend a lot of time in the Gospels, and we're also going to spend some time in Revelation. If you wonder how I'm going to preach a Christmas message with Revelation, it's going to be good. That's all I'm saying. Uh, so, as a way of introduction, let me see real quick. Students, uh, are you guys ready for finals week? No. Is there anybody that's like ready to go? I mean, what's the worst that's going to happen? You ruin the rest of your life by failing these finals? Right? No big, no big deal. Uh, parents are, are not students. Has anyone done Christmas shopping? I mean, just raise your hand. You're completely finished Christmas shopping. Keep your hands up. This church is not for you. Okay? This is the procrastination. Sarah Hoy, or Sarah Thomas, are you really done with Christmas? I don't believe it for a second. That's impressive. You get a free book from the book nook for that. If you're done with Christmas shopping, go to the book nook. Go get a free one. They're actually all free, but that's, that's pretty incredible. So uh, this morning, I'm really excited just to go into Isaiah 9 and spend some time there with us um, because we're celebrating Advent, which is just the arrival, the coming of Christ. And, and we're in this unique place in redemptive history where um, we get to look back and celebrate and remember the first arrival or the first coming of Christ. But then simultaneously, we get to look forward with expectation that Christ is coming again. So we get this, I mean, I would, until Christ comes again, I mean, we're just in such a sweet spot where we can look back and be encouraged by the promises and look forward to the future. And it's also a time for us just Advent, because I know most of us probably didn't celebrate Advent growing up. It's a time for us just to slow down right, to, to focus on what really matters. I mean, even just for me, I had to sit down at dinner the other night and just confess to my wife and kids, like, hey, I've, I've missed it yet again, that within the hustle and bustle of church and school and life, I have not personally slowed down enough to remember and to celebrate Christ's arrival, and therefore, I haven't slowed down enough to lead my family in that capacity. So, so we stopped, we prayed, we talked about it, we played some biblical trivia based around the story of Christ's coming, and in an attempt to slow down. So, so here's my encouragement. As we, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but, but we've got to slow down. Students, I know finals week is a big week. You've got to slow down. I know Christmas is coming. We've got to be all these presents and cook all these. We've got to slow down because all of that is vanity. All of that is worthless. What matters is that Christ has come and he's coming again. And we've got to slow down and study and remember and reflect that. And so, so for us, as we've gone through this season, we've just looked at Isaiah 9-6. So if you have your Bible, we're really focusing in on Isaiah 9-6. In just a simple Advent series, we're calling Promises Fulfilled. So we're looking at the promises that God told Isaiah and he told the world that made it into the canonization of Scripture, and we're looking to how Christ has fulfilled them with the expectation and hope of that they're going to be fulfilled again. Now, as a dad, one of the most important things for me is to keep my promises to my kids, right? Like, that just, that matters to me. Now, I don't know how little five- and six-year-olds already understand how to manipulate their father, but this is how it happened, right? Before I preface this story, uh, let me explain that, that memory loss has ran in my family, right? Okay? I don't, again, I don't know how these little spawns of Satan knew that, but here's what happened. We went through this. They're not really spawns. They're great. But in this story, they're Satan. Uh, they started manipulating me by saying, but Dad, you promised. You promised you would do that. Now, that for me, it's like, well, then i got to do it. Like I, I, I literally don't remember promising that, but if I promise that, honey, we'll do it. I'll take care of it. And finally, Brie goes, Gabe, you didn't say that. You, you never promised anything. So these little conniving, manipulative, little beautiful children had already found out that if they said, hey, tell dad you promised this, he'll do it for us. Just, no matter what it is, he'll do it. Because I'm sitting there thinking, I'm 34. There's no way I'm already starting to lose my mind, but they said I did it, so I'll do it. And here, kids, here's ice cream for dinner, like I promised. What we're going to see this morning 
is God keeps his promises. And there's no manipulation there. There's none of that. There's a pure God is holy, God is righteous. What he said will happen. And so again, our place in redemptive history, we get to look back and see God said it in Isaiah. Through Christ it came true. So if this is true, what else is true? If this is true, if he kept his promises here, then we can assume and we can have faith, we can hope that every other promise that he said, he will fulfill. And it's such an encouraging thing for us just to slow down and remember. So Isaiah 9, I'm just going to read 6 through 7 for now, just to kind of get us into the understanding of where we are. If you have any background in church, this is going to make a bunch of sense to us, but, but here's where we are. Isaiah 9, we're going to pick it up in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I love this line. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here are the promises, and the zeal of the Lord will do this. This will happen. So let me pray for us, and then we'll set this up real quick. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word. And thank you for holding to your promises. Father, that you spoke to them in the Old Testament. You spoke to the people of God then, and you're filling these promises now. And Father, we're so grateful for that. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. And amen. So just real quick, some context. Am I really loud? Okay, can you turn me down a little bit, Jared? I'm, I'm loud. Caleb, is, his ears are bleeding. It's loud. So we have to do a little bit of setting, and I'm going to get hyped later, so just go ahead and tell you. I'm, I'm trying to get really fast to the, my fourth point, because this is where I'm going to camp out. And Tori, where's Tori? Is Tori in here? Tori Ray? No, okay, so two weeks ago, oh, there she is. Two weeks ago, I got done preaching. I walked into the kids' area, and she goes, oh, you went long, didn't you? So I got to go shorter. So I'm trying to get to this fourth point because our wonderful nursery volunteers hate it when I go long. But we have to understand the context of Isaiah 9 to understand where we are and where we're going. Uh, because we, we know most of us are kind of familiar with the story of the Old Testament, right? So you have um, the people, Moses leads the people out of the promise or out of Egypt, takes them into the journey to the promised land. They get the law, they get the Ten Commandments. But because of Moses' sin, they don't make it there. So Moses dies, Joshua comes, leads them into Canaan. And then they want a leader. They want someone to lead the promised land, someone to lead the nation, the people of God. So they get the judges, and through the judges series, there's this phrase that comes up over and over and over again, that the people of God did what was right in their own eyes. And so it was a train wreck. So then the people want, no, we want a king. We want actual someone to rule us and reign over us. So we have Saul, and then after Saul, we have David. After David, we have Solomon. And then Solomon's sons, in the reign after that, things really go sideways. So the promised land, the land of the people of God, Israel, uh, gets split into two. So you have Israel across the top, you have Judah on the bottom, and so Israel falls, right? And then right after that, Judah is going to fall. So this is where we get this story. This is where Isaiah is prophesying to the people of God within Judah, which Jerusalem was in Judah, and said, hey, destruction's coming your way, get ready. Like, like, I don't know how many of you are going to survive because of the sins that you've committed against God. Destruction is coming. But, but the very unique thing about the book of Isaiah is there's always destruction plus hope, right? So, hey, yeah, I don't know how many people are going to make it out of this. You're going to get kicked out of your land. Destruction is coming, but there's hope. And, and really for us, that is what the people of God deal with. Right? So, so there's hardships, but then there's a promise. There's destruction, but then there's hope. And there's this constant back and forth to where the world just lives in the first part. All the world sees is the destructions and the calamities and the things that's going on within the world. But we see this, but we also have the other side. We have a hope. We have a future. We have a promise. So the people of God should never look like the world in this simple regard. Yes, there's destruction. Yes, there's really hard times. But we have hope. Like, like this, this is not our home. This is not the end-all, be-all. We have hope. And I, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I publicly failed leading you guys through COVID. 
because I fought right into destruction, hope, or despair, this thing, the world's falling apart. I did not have the foresight to go, but, but God told us there's going to be destruction. John 16, there's going to be hardship, but take heart, I've overcome the world, that there's hope here. And so the whole book, the whole message of Isaiah is, yes, destruction, but there's hope. Yes, hardship, but there's a promise of the future. Hold on, hold fast. And so if we look at the top of chapter 9, verse 1, you see this word, but. But. So Isaiah chapter 8, yeah, you're going to lose. A series is going to take you over. This is going to end badly for you, people of God. Just be ready. But the beginning of chapter 9, but... And we see this in Galatians, but when the fullness of time had come. We see this in Ephesians 2, but. So every time we see this, but, this is kind of this analogy, right? This, this undercurrent of hardship but promise. And it's us as people of God. We should resonate with the people of God in the Old Testament. Yeah, there's going to be hardship and calamities and destruction, but we have hope. We have a future. Isaiah 9, chapter 1 says this, but. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And then again, at the end of chapter 9, middle of chapter 9, we see this part where it's prophesying about the coming of Jesus. And we see four characteristics, four promises of what the, the God of, or who Christ is going to be, excuse me. Two weeks ago, Dylan covered the wonderful counselor, that Jesus will be called the wonderful counselor. Last week, Stephen covered mighty God. This week, we're going to cover everlasting Father, and then next week, we'll cover Prince of Peace. So what I want to do for us real fast is just kind of talk about the original audience. When they heard the phrase everlasting Father, what did that mean to them? And then I want us to fast forward to the Gospels and look at Jesus fulfilling and living out this role of everlasting Father. So what this meant for the original audience uh, is really baffling. Because, again, you have this group of people that are going, okay, like, we're going to be overtaken. Some of our lives are going to be lost. We're going to be kicked out of our homes. We're going to be kicked out of our cities. We're going to be kicked out of our country. This land that God has given us because of our sin, because of the destruction that's coming, we're going to be kicked out. But then there's this promise made. Now, let's be clear. This promise is not fulfilled for 700 years. 700 years, 700 years. You want me to keep saying that? Maybe it's just me, but I live in, and we all live in this instant gratification culture where we want what we want now. Anyone else, or is that just me? 700 years. So, promise of God, it will be fulfilled 700 years later. We we could have a whole other sermon there, 700 years, but... When they get to this phrase, everlasting father, just in my mind, when, when the people of God are reading this or hearing this from Isaiah, you know when a dog just kind of turns his head to the side like, wait, what? That, that's the mental image when I get to everlasting father. Because first you have this idea of everlasting, that, that this is going to be an eternal. So when, when Jesus comes, when this child comes, he's going to be everlasting, and they've done funeral after funeral after funeral. They, they have no framework for how in the world, because this person that's supposed to come, a child that's going to be born to us, going to last forever, everlasting. But then the second part is this idea of father. Now, if you just look throughout the Old Testament, the word father is very rarely used. And it's almost never used to describe God. So this child that God is sending is going to be a father, And that's where the head just turns, because he's Yahweh, he's holy, he is the Lord. There's no real framework for them to see God as Father. They have fear, they have reverence, they have respect, but but to view God as a Father was a total paradigm shift for them to even start and to walk into. So we're going to spend some time with this idea as Father, but but you have to understand for this original audience, that didn't immediately go, oh, okay, mighty God, sure, they get it. Prince of Peace? I got it, I got it. Wonderful counselor can maybe even, but this one, everlasting father, just raised a bunch of questions for them. Now, I know, because I have some really good, smart thinkers in this room, when you hear Jesus described as everlasting father, that's a problem, right? Because if we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit within the Trinity, how can the Father in the Father be 
How does that work? How can Jesus be the Father when God's the Father? And there's actually a heresy that's built around this called modalism, right? Where, where they're not actually three distinct persons, they're just kind of the same. How, how water can be uh, rain, it can be a gas, it could be a solid when it freezes. That's kind of how the Trinity is. And that's, that's a heresy that got thrown out in the early church. That's not what's happening here. This word father is a descriptive analogy pointing to Christ's character. He's saying that he's going to be fatherly or father-like. This is similar to what the psalmist said when in uh, Psalm 103:13 that as a father shows compassion to his children so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear them. So when Jesus comes some 700 years later he's going to be an everlasting father-like figure with compassion with weight with with uh, care as a father would have. And one way that this keeps getting translated over and over and over again by many different commentators that are way smarter than me that go back to the original Hebrew and understands this is when they translate father, here's how they say it, a benevolent protector. So when Jesus comes, he's going to be an everlasting benevolent protector. Here's what he's, they're saying. And so when they understand this word is protector, I mean, wouldn't you be pumped if your whole land is about to be taken away, if your friends and family are about to be killed, wouldn't you be fired up to hear that you're going to get a protector, that someone's going to come protect you because this is what a father does? It's going to be an everlasting, benevolent protector. And so for us this morning, just in the time that we have left, here's what I want us to see. As this promise is fulfilled in the New Testament, that Jesus is an eternal and perpetual tender-hearted protector. This is what was prophesied and promised in Isaiah, and 700 years later, we're going to see how Jesus fulfilled every bit of this, that Jesus is an eternal and perpetual, tender-hearted protector. So I just want to spend a few moments looking at eternal, perpetual, tender-hearted, and protector. Because when we see this word everlasting, we really have to tease this out to eternal and perpetual, and we'll see that in a second. So, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and go to John. We've kind of set the scene for Isaiah. Now go to John. Okay, so we're going to be flipping through a bunch of different passages. Uh, if you're taking notes, it might just be easier. I'm going to be rattling off Scripture like water, so it might just be easier to write them down and um, go home and, and read about them this afternoon. But we're going to pick it up with this idea of eternal, that Jesus is going to be eternal. And we see this in John chapter 10. John chapter 10. John 10, we're going to read 27 through 30. Have I ever told y'all just how ADD I am? This stage is squeaking and it's driving me crazy. I'm actually going to slide this over. Solid. John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This is Jesus talking. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hands. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Jesus is saying, I am God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. If God is eternal, then I am eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. So his role as a father is eternal and everlasting. And we have to see this. And, and even let's, let's take it out of Scripture real quick and just put it into the world. One of the, one of the most destructive things that I've seen pastorally and we just see even as a society is fathers that abandon their children, right? The fathers that are not everlasting, fathers that are not eternal. And I'm not talking immortal. I'm just talking fathers that leave, that just go. And, I, and I've hung out with enough of you guys in this room. We prayed together and talked together. That I know this is a reality for some of us. And so we just have to kind of compare and contrast our experience with our earthly father compared to our experience with our heavenly father. Could it be, could it be that we're not uh, in love, we're not pursuing Jesus as much as we should or as much as we desire to because we've misunderstood this eternalness of the father, that he is never going anywhere. 
So here's just some statistics for us. And this is just U.S. One third of kids in the U.S. have no access to their father. Right, so when we talk about the internality of the father, that he's going to be here forever with us. A third of kids in the U.S. have no access to the father. 24.7 million children live in a home where their biological father isn't present. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 85% of youth who grow up in prison come from a fatherless home. 90% of homeless and runaways kids are from fatherless homes. Uh, 80% uh, that commit horrendous crimes with anger problems come from fatherless homes. And 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. So straight out of the gate, if our Jesus, right, if Jesus that came to fill this promise is an eternal and perpetual, tender-hearted protector, he is our Father, the first thing that we have to see is he is not going anywhere. He's with us forever. We see this in the Great Commission, right? Here's what I want you to do. Go and make disciples. And remember what? I'm with you always till the end of the day. I'm not going anywhere. And this should just bring such a comfort to us in our hearts and in our lives that we have a father, right? That we have this eternal father, this eternal tenderhearted protector that isn't going anywhere. No matter what we do, no matter what sins we commit, no matter how far we run, our father is going nowhere. But here's what also he does. We see this at the end of verse 28, 29. My Father who has given to me, excuse me, end of 28, yeah, yeah. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. So only those that are eternal can give eternity. Does this make sense? Like you can't give something that you do not have. I hear this happen all the time in our house. I'll hear one of my kids, they're beautiful children, say, hey, Grady, I'll give you $200 to go clean my room. Like, I mean, I would take that deal 100%. If you had $200, you can't make an offer of something you do not have. So no one can give us eternal life unless they're first eternal. So here's what we have. This eternal father, the only person that can give us eternal life is one that is actually eternal himself. So we have this eternal, this big 30,000 foot view that our father is eternal. But this word also needs to be translated to boots on the ground. So yes, not only was Jesus eternal, but Jesus was perpetual. He was perpetual, meaning he was never changing. He was never changing. Yes, he was the alpha and the omega, but his character and his love for his people never changed. When we study the Gospels and we study the ministry of Jesus, that one steady theme throughout the entire point is what? Jesus' character, Jesus' love, Jesus' attitude, his behavior, he never once changed. Now Hebrews 13.8 just puts it as plain as day. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So yes, Jesus is eternal. He's last forever and he will continue to last forever. But he is perpetual, that he is never changing. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what is this glue that holds Jesus together? What is the root, the core of his ministry? Well, John 13 would put it this way. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So the glue of Jesus's ministry is his love. And so he's challenging his disciples, hey, just as I've loved you, now I'm sending you out to love the world. But the unchanging characteristic, the perpetual the idea of God, or Jesus as Father, is his love, is his care. And here's just the crazy part about this. A new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, this is moments. I'm talking moments before the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. Jesus has just dismissed Judas to, hey, go do what you're going to do. So Jesus, being eternal, knew that Judas was going to betray him the entire time. But his love for Judas never changed. His love for Judas never changed. For the entireness of his ministry, his love for Judas never changed. Up until the point where Jesus dismissed him from the table to go do what you're going to do. 
Go betray me so that I will be murdered, Jesus. Go, go get it done. But I've still loved you. For the entirety of the three years we've been together, I've still loved you. I didn't show favorites to Peter, James, and John. I didn't ignore you, Judas. I loved you. He never gave up on Judas. Did y'all catch that? I mean, just that Jesus never gave up on someone that he knew was going to betray him. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I constantly feel like I am either one sin before or one sin after Jesus going, I'm done with you. Like, you've committed that sin again, Gabe. You've doubted again, Gabe. Like, are you kidding me? I'm always feeling like a disappointment to Jesus. If I could just get my stuff together, that, that everything would be better. That Jesus is perpetually disappointed in me. He, that, that I offer him nothing because I struggle with this sin over and over and over again. And the moment that I lose my cool or the moment that I'm short-tempered with somebody or the moment that I try to control things because I don't trust him to control anyone else, I feel like that's the last straw for him. That, that I'm now too far gone. And then I have to work to earn the grace back. Father, I've sinned against you. Let me earn my way back into, and this sounds a lot like the prodigal son, right? And the father and the prodigal son says, son, you were never worthy to be called my son. That that's not how this relationship works. I love you regardless of what you do. So we're going to kill the fattened calf. We're going to throw a massive party because my son that was lost is now home. Let's celebrate. Let's rejoice. But I don't feel like I get that treatment, Right? The, the image that I have of Jesus is, all right, just go sit down over there and just don't mess anything else up. Just, just stop, just leave me alone. Go over, we're, we're fine, just go sit over there. So the perpetualness of Jesus' character as a father rooted in deeply developed in love means none of that's true. That the moment that I confess, the moment that I come running back, a party's gonna happen. So we have to see this, yes, eternal, but more important for us, I think, is perpetual. That his love never runs out. I mean, how ludicrous would it be if I were to kick one of my kids out? How ludicrous would that be? Ah, you messed up again, you're out. Go live with the coyotes. But that's what we assume Jesus is going to do to us. And friends, that's just not true. When we look at the promises fulfilled through Christ, that is just not true. And here's why. We get into this benevolent protector part. So yes, we have eternal and then we have perpetual, but next we see this promise that's going to be fulfilled. He's going to be a benevolent father. He's going to be a tender-hearted father. Now let me just read a couple passages. You don't have to flip on any of these, but hopefully these will set the scene. Mark 2, 16 through 17. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw him, he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus was tenderhearted towards the sinners, so much so that his ministry was rooted in those People, go home and read the Beatitudes. Go read the Sermon on the Mount, and you'll see that Jesus was drawn to those. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Mark 9.35-36, and Jesus went throughout all cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion. When he saw the crowds that were following him, he had compassion. He was tender-hearted for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And lastly, Luke 19, I say lastly, the last one that I have. You can flip page after page after page of the Gospels, and this theme will be all throughout. Luke 19, 41 through 42. And when he drew near the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it saying that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. 
So we see the tenderheartedness of Jesus come out even in the last days as he weeps over Jerusalem. I've been with you. I've shown you who I am. And you've still rejected. And in this moment, there was not anger. There was not lashing out. There was a tenderhearted, broken time of weeping for Jesus. That our Father is tenderhearted. That Jesus in his fatherly attributes was so tenderhearted. Now, I'll just be straight up honest with you. My kids, when they look at me, do not see tenderhearted, right? If there's one thing that's going to send my kids to counseling in a few years, it's going to be this, that I need to grow in my tenderheartedness. And, and a lot of us might have that shared experience. So, so when we look at Jesus, we don't see his tenderheartedness. When we read the Gospels, that's not what jumps off the page. It's his fatherly attribute of being tender-hearted. So for some of us, it might be our upbringing that is not allowing us to see that. But, but here's where I think the most often root of this. How do we miss the fact that Jesus is tender-hearted? Because we don't think that we're the sick. Because we don't think that we're the lost. Because we don't think that we're the helpless. Because we don't think that we're the broken because we don't think that we need help. So how would we see the tender heart of God when, when we're just walking around, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm good. No, no, that person, that person needs help. Uh, if, you, if Jesus, if you want to help somebody, let me, let me tell you about this person. I am way better than that person. But yeah, let me, let me, actually, let's get together, let's pray for this person so that I feel a whole lot better about myself. I'm just being honest, I get, I'm so cynical these days, so if I hear someone constantly blabbing off about someone else's sin, I just secretly think you're hiding way more sin than they are, right? You're constantly trying to like, no, don't look at me, look at them. That's a sinner. I just messed up, right? So, so are we possibly missing the tender heart of Jesus because we're not being real about our sin and our struggles and our brokenness, that we've not had many experiences in our life where we've had to cry out and say, I have literally nowhere else to turn Jesus but you. And we've never experienced the sweet saving of our Father Jesus because we've never cried out for help. Again, going back to the prodigal son story, where did the father sit? On the porch. He waited. And he waited till his son said, I can never do this anymore. I've got to go back to my father's house. I'm, I'm literally eating what the pigs eat. And I'm a Jew. I'm not supposed to be with pigs, but I'm eating their food and I'm sleeping with I would have it better at my father's house. So I'm going to go back. And the moment he comes back, the father runs. But it took that brokenness and despair and admitting you need help. And for some of us, that is this morning that you were carrying a load you were never designed to carry. And you're sitting there just trying to hold it together as much as possible. And you're at your wit's end. And I'm pleading with you. You have a father that wants to carry your load. That wants to love you. That is so tenderhearted that is broken because you're not coming to him. I mean, I say, Father, how broken would I be if my kids wouldn't come to me and ask for help? He's longing. He's desiring to show his love for you but you've got to admit that you need help. You've got to confess your sins, that you are broken and you need help. So we see his eternal and perpetual tenderhearted. Now let's look at the fact that Jesus is a protector. Eternal, perpetual, tenderhearted father. And in this Hebrew context means protector. Now I'll just be honest. I love this part. This is the part I've been trying to get to. That Jesus is a protector. Now, I mean, when I, had, when I found out, I, I think I've told this to most of you guys, but when we found out we were going to have Auburn, right, which Auburn's my 10-year-old, she was our firstborn. Um, Brie came home. This is not a good moment for me. You can make fun of me if you want to. But uh, she came home and she said, hey, uh, I, I think I'm pregnant. I took a pregnancy test. Uh, we're going to be parents. Now, you would think that a good father, a good husband would celebrate, would rejoice. I said, no, you need to go to CVS right now and get more pregnancy tests. I was losing my mind. She's like, are you going to go with me? Absolutely not. Girl, hit the road. I got to sit here for a second. So, I mean, can you, I, 
I sent my brain, like, we just been married for nine months, and I sent her to CVS by herself to buy pregnancy test. Like, uh, anyways, gosh, that's not a good moment for me. So, anyways, I lost my mind, right? Like, I freaked out. I don't know how to be a dad. I wasn't ready to be a dad. What's this going to look like? I devoured books. I was reading. I was studying. I was interviewing all these different kind of dads. But you know the one piece of advice that I didn't have to ask for help with is how to be a protector, because there's something innate in men and fathers in particular that we are designed to protect. And everything that I do and everything that we do as men is centered around protecting our wife and protecting our kids. And I'm constantly on the prowl looking for danger that my kids might interact with. And I've told you once, and I'll tell you again, I will gladly go to jail and forfeit my role as the pastor to protect my children. If that means that I just go hard on some people to protect my kids, I will. That is fine with me. There are two, never mind. I've got guns. I'll just put it that way. Nearby. Not a question. I love my kids way more than I love standing up and preaching to you guys. I will protect them at all costs. And that just, I mean, that's the subtle things, right? I mean, that means when we're walking down, when we're leaving Jethro's and we're walking down the side of the road, I'm going to casually put my kids in, on the inside of me so that if a car comes, I'm going to be the first line of defense before they get to them. That's the subtleness of what it means to be a protector. So when the Jesus comes and his fatherly attributes, one of the massive ones that we see is that Jesus is not only tenderhearted, he's not only eternal, he's not only perpetual, but he is a protector, that he is our only line of defense before death, before sin, before destruction in us. There's nothing else. There's not your good deeds. There's not your good works. There's not anything else. Jesus is the only line of defense because he is our protector. Now, I want to paint a picture. uh, Excuse me. Scripture is going to paint a picture for us in the manger scene that I don't know that most of us have read. Has anyone flipped to Revelation during an Advent series? Well, you're a pastor's kid. That makes sense. Revelation 12. Just go with me real quick. Because we'll see from the onset, from the very beginning of Jesus' life, he was already the protector. He was the defender. He was the intermediary between the sin and Satan in the world. Now, when we read this together, there's going to be a lot of questions. And I'm going to say, ask the other elders. Because I don't begin to understand all that's taking place in the book of Revelation. Ask Stephen. When he comes back, you can ask Stephen. But here is what's the reality of what's taking place within the manger scene. Maybe a, a flip side of it. Maybe the upside down. Revelation 12, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. So this is the revelation of of Jesus being born. This is Mary giving birth to Jesus. And it's about to get crazy. Verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten hordes on his head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third, a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And there the dragon stor- stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was called up to God and to his throne. So here it is. I mean, from the moment of the birth of Jesus, right? Like, we have the nativity scene set up. We watch Star. So we think, oh, the only people that was present during the birth of Jesus was like a couple cows, uh, maybe a sheep, maybe the dove, which I just think is so funny because those are the sacrifices, but they never know it. Like, that just cracks me up. If you haven't seen the Star, go watch the Star, and it's hilarious. So, so we have the nativity scene, but, but I promise you, here's what's missing from all of our nativity scenes the dragon ready to devour. The warfare that's taking place at the birth of Jesus. That right out of the gate, you have Mary and Joseph and you have the devil 
And what's in between? Our great protector, our Father, King Jesus. That's what's in between. That's what holds him off. That's what keeps him from devouring everyone is the birth of Jesus. And we see this throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. I mean, one of my favorite stories is John 8, right? The woman caught in adultery. So this woman's caught in adultery. The, the Pharisees and religious leaders bring her out before, the Jesus, before Jesus and say, look, uh, the law of Moses said any woman caught in the act of adultery, uh, she should be stoned to death. What says you? Now, this poor girl was just a pawn in the whole scheme of what's happening, what's taking place. Most scholars would agree that they lured her into an act of prostitution just to trick her, not about her, but trying to get Jesus in a trap. So they lay this woman out in front of Jesus and say, the law of Moses says this, we should stone her. What do you say? Her life is on the line. So here's a woman right, who just got thrown into this, death is impending, it's knocking on her door. Whatever Jesus responds with, it, her eyes, it's going to be death. I'm, I'm guilty, I'm caught. And Jesus steps and walks around in between this woman and the religious leaders and says what? Anyone here is not sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. So the one that could have her stone just said, no, I'm going to stand here, you stay there, She's going to stay here, and I'm protecting her from you, you wolves. This vulnerable woman, I'm here to save, and I'm here to rescue. I'm here to redeem. I'm not going to let anything happen to her. I'm going to protect her, and literally by putting himself in between those that are trying to kill her and her. This is what we see as Jesus as the protector and we see the motivation for this in Hebrews 12 too. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. With joy he came to protect us. Because that is what a father does. With joy, he stood in between Satan and sin and his enemies in between his people. And he laid down his life with joy. With joy. As a father, we see this. That if there's, a, if there's evil threat to my family and say, if you don't move, I'm going to kill you. But if you move, I'm going to kill your kids. There's not this like, hmm, let me calculate that. I'm 34, I make this amount of money, but if they're going to live for like, let's just say 62 more years, th there's no calculation going on at that point. You, you kill me, I'm not moving, because I love my kids. With joy, I would lay down my life to protect my children. And so we see this happening with Christ. With joy, he protected us to the point of death. I think Ephesians 2 would just put it perfectly as we start to close. And here's this word again. But, yes, there's destruction. Yes, there's turmoil. Yes, there's hardship. Yes, there's pain. Ephesians 2, 4. But, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That he stepped in between. He protected us from our sin and death. And he willingly stepped in between and died. And because of that, by grace, we've been saved. That Jesus, as the eternal Father, took his fatherly role as a tender-hearted Father to the point of death. That he was so serious about protecting his children that he willingly and joyfully laid down his life. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is what we get to celebrate. This is what we must slow down and remember because Jesus went to the uttermost degree to protect his children. Because he's eternal and he's perpetual and he's tenderhearted and he's a protector. So as we close, as we start to consider this time before we go to communion, one, what does it mean for us that these promises that were made more than 700 years before the birth of Jesus have completely and utterly been fulfilled through him? What joy does that stir up in us? And then secondly, do we see him as eternal and perpetual tender-hearted protector? When we think of Jesus, is that what we consider him as? Or do we consider him as a conditional friend? 
that as long as we keep up in our, our end of the bargain, he'll, he'll be good with us. But the moment we fail him, our friendship's over. Or do we see him as a temporary helper? He only swings in when we desperately need him, but then he's absent again. We have to really beg him, I have got this real big project coming, can you please come help me, Jesus? And he shows up and he does it and drinks all your drinks and then disappears. Is that how we see him? Or do we see him as a frustrated but tolerating sibling? He's just helping you so that he doesn't get in trouble by his father. Dad told me how to do this, so let's get it done. Hurry up. How is it that we see our father? How is it that we see Jesus, the promise of the fulfillment of the eternal and perpetual tenderhearted protector? Because if we see this rightly, not only does it change the way we live today, but it totally and radically changes the future that we look forward to. Because look right at me. There's going to be a day we don't need a protector. Right? I mean, there's going to be a day where there is no more sin. There's going to be a day where there is no more tears. There is no more death. There is no more despair. There's nothing that we need to be protected from. That we will eternally and perpetually be with our tenderhearted Father forever. But the protection part is gone because we're with him forever. But if we don't long, if we don't yearn for our Father now, we're never going to care about eternity. We're going to think, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I hear Amazing Grace, we've been there 10,000 years. I'm like, bleh. Grow, I don't want to be anywhere singing that song for 10,000 years with these people around me that smell like dentures and it's just weird. Right? Anyone else? Just me? But when we truly understand that Jesus is the eternal and perpetual tenderhearted protector, then our soul starts to yearn and long for Christ's return, for his second arrival, for the second advent that's coming. So here's, here's my simple question as we close. Do you view him as that? Do you view him as your eternal and perpetual tenderhearted protector? And if not, where? If not, where? So we're going to enter into a time of communion, and this is a time for us to examine our own hearts, examine our own lives. Where, where are we missing the character and nature of God? Do you think his life is temporary? Do you think that he's going to change? If he knew what you did, his attitude about you would change. Have you missed the tenderhearted part and you think that he's just stern and mean and absent? And have we missed the gospel that he protects, that he saves, that he steps willingly, joyfully in between us and death? And takes that place for us. What, what is it that we need to repent from and, and run to this morning? So let me read for us out of 1 Corinthians 11, just the instructions for communion. And then we'll have a time of prayer and then we'll open up communion together. This is Paul's words. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat and drink of the cup and the bread. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So here's what this means, church. Let us stop and have a time of repentance. Let us confess our sins, and then let us go back and take the bread which represents his body and the juice that represents his blood and worship him as our protector, that he did this, that he laid down his body, he laid down his life with joy, for us. And if you're not yet a believer in this room yet, we're so grateful that you're here and you can hear a little bit about this Jesus that we love and worship. But according to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians, we would say, hey, just, just skip out on this part. That this is a holy time for those that have been saved and rescued. But if you have any questions about any of that or anything in general, if you just need prayer, the elders will be in the back. Uh, we'll be the ones awkwardly standing by ourselves. You can come grab us. Uh, we'll pray with you. We'll talk. And then we'll worship. 
because we have a Jesus, we have a Father that's eternal, perpetual, tender-hearted protector. And that's what we get to worship in this coming of Christ this season. So let's pray. Father, we love you. But it's so remarkable reading the scripture and, and understanding the promises that were made about you and, and how you fulfilled them. That when you came, you came with a purpose to give us hope, to give us life, to give us a future. That you didn't come for the perfect, that you came for the broken, that you came for me, that you came for us. Those that hurt and are so broken, most days we don't know which way's up. Those that are tired of trying to figure out this life on our own, that's who you came for. You came for the sinners, as Paul says, of which I'm the foremost. But your love for us never changes. That your grace towards us never ceases. That your willingness to jump in between us and the spawn of Satan and death and destruction never changes. You never consider the other options. You just do it. You just jumped in willingly to save us, to redeem us, to rescue us from death and destruction. That was a promise that was made to the people of God that were on the way to destruction. And that is a message to us in this room that we were on our way and not just exile and being kicked out of our land, but eternity separated from you. But you willingly and lovingly with joy jumped in and saved us and rescued us and redeemed us. So as we take communion this morning, let us rejoice because you have come. And as we take communion, let us look forward to the second coming where we will need protection will be in your perfect, tender-hearted, eternal and perpetual presence forever and ever. And for that, we look forward to you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us a future. So church, I'm gonna leave us in this moment of prayer, of repentance. And whenever you're ready, the communion tables are open and We'll continue in worship.